If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Puro Politics, the rich strike of political podcasts. Hoping to overcome the 80 to 1 odds and see if we can make it to the finish line today. Um, it's we're, 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 we're the underdogs, you know. But um, my name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by business editor Greg Jefferson, investigative reporter Brian Chasnoff, columnist, editorial board member Kerry Clapp. We've got a lot to talk about today. We want to talk about the uh, draft opinion, uh, Supreme Court opinion uh which leaked last week on the issue of abortion and uh, is going to have a seismic in, impact in this country also want to talk about uh what the san antonio spurs are up to there's a lot of um there are a lot of questions i think in the community about uh, the, the spurs intentions and and their future in san antonio so we want to talk a little bit about that uh, i just wanted to briefly talk a little bit about the uh saturday election that we had we had uh some uh, school board races and some school bond races. Uh, I think the big news was that all six San Antonio bond propositions uh, easily passed. Um, the, there was only one that um, the final one, the um, the housing, the affordable housing bond that was under 60%, even that was very close to 60%. So they all passed uh, easily. Um, I think uh, there's going to be, I think, a lot of interest in what's going on with the uh, NEISD school board, um, you had, uh, two, cons- uh, incumbents in, on the NEISD board who were ousted by challengers who were getting funding from a, a kind of a conservative, uh, pack, which is, has advocated for parental rights and keeping politics out of education. Um, there's a sense that we're going to have some culture war battles going on, uh, with the NEISD board there, we'd already had some, some hint of that before, but I think now that the, uh, that there's going to uh, the, the sort of conservative forces, I think are going to have a lot more power on, on the board. And I think we're going to, that's something that we're going to be watching as we go forward. But I wanted to now uh, talk a little bit about the uh, abortion issue. We, last week, there was the, the leak of a draft opinion from justice Samuel Alito, uh, in response to a Mississippi case, and this decision, if if it ends up standing, will apparently uh, overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which uh, offered uh, abortion protection to women in this country. And um, the the political impact of this will be huge, and and the impact for reproductive rights will be huge in this country. And I think we're probably looking at going back to a, a situation uh, that we had pre-Roe uh, where it's going to be a state-by-state state dynamic and many states will have extremely restrictive um, laws and people, women will be in a position where they'll have to go if, uh, from from their home state to another state and try to find a lo- location where they could they can uh, have an abortion if they, if they choose to do that. 
Um, Carrie, I wanted to start with you. You know, again, this this decision has not been uh, you know formally uh, rendered, but it's we know that this that this uh, document that leaked is legitimate, and um, this seems to be the majority opinion. You know, what's your reaction to this? Uh, well, I, I guess this was always it was always something that we thought would happen that could happen. There was always the possibility that it, it, it would be overturned. Uh, but now that we're there, or we're about to get there within the next few weeks, it, it's it's kind of surreal. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first constitutional right which, which has ever been withdrawn. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's it, you know, and, and you see that it's in, emboldening people across the country. I mean, we're talking about the possibilities of, of uh, restricting contraception. I saw the governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, on yesterday, and he, mm-hmm. you know, he wouldn't move that out. Uh, it, it, it's just, it's going to lead us to so many places that perhaps we didn't imagine, but I think it may also lead its biggest uh, proponents, those who wanted to see Roe overturned, and may possibly lead them to places politically that they did not imagine, and that could not be, which may not be good when it comes to mobilizing people, especially women, especially um, some Republican women who see that what was always feared is a reality. And it, what you had been seeing for a while, and we saw this in Texas last last year, um, you know, with the passage of a law that uh, essentially uh, restricted abortion after roughly six weeks. Um, but in, in that case, it empowered private citizens, uh, you know, to sue individuals who enabled a woman to, to, uh, obtain an abortion. Uh, I, I think with that law and other laws in other States, we were really seeing States testing Roe because the, 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 clearly that Texas law was, was contrary to the spirit of the Roe decision, which essentially said that women had, unrestricted access to abortion for at least the first three months. And then they placed some restrictions on, on the, on the second trimester, but we were seeing States trying to see how far they could push this in, in restricting this. Um, you know, Brian, what do you, what is your sense about, about what, what Texas, uh, you know, we know that there's been a really strong anti-abortion push among Republicans in this state. What do you think the reaction is going to be? Well, I think it'll, I think it'll just embolden the anti-abortion forces in the legislature. Uh, I mean, you see what what's going on in Louisiana just next door. There's a there's now a push to classify abortion uh, as as murder. I believe as a criminal offense. Um, I haven't heard similar similar uh, machinations in Texas yet, but yeah. I mean, well, that, and the- that's that's somewhat o- ominous for yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and we're no, we're and we're one of I think thirteen states that have trigger laws, which essentially say that if Roe is overturned, right. essentially, you know, we're we're we're, we're automatically uh, going in that direction. So, um, Greg, I want to get your thoughts. You know, there's a lot of of uh, national attention, really, that's been focused on the uh, District 28 congressional race between Henry Cuellar, whose district includes part of San Antonio, but he's based in Laredo. He's a nine-term congressman. He's mm-hmm. kind of been one of the, the moderates 
uh, in the Democratic caucus. And he has been right. He's really yeah. the lone anti-abortion Democrat now. And he's got he already had a tough runoff with Jessica Cisneros, who's a progressive immigration attorney. And now we have this decision, which has, mm-hmm. you know, which is has Democrats very stirred up. I'm, I'm curious to see mm-hmm. how you think that this the leak of this Alito opinion um, will affect the race. I mean, politically speaking, he's got to be worried. I mean, I think, uh, you know, this this is something that scares um supporters of abortion rights. And that's the kind of thing fear is one of one of the things that moves people to get out and vote. And in this case, you know, it's, you know, he's, he's not a particularly attractive candidate if you want a staunch defender of abortion rights. Uh, he is pro-life. I mean, he's been very clear about this his entire career. He's not, he's not been particularly mealy-mouthed about it. Although, I mean, you know, he does, he does support uh, exemptions for uh, rape and incest, right. uh, but I mean that's you know th- th- that's a that's a that's a marginal issue. I mean, I, I think people you know if you're a supporter of abortion rights, uh, you think it is uh, should be available to all women. And in District 28, we're about to see um, how much concern there is among female voters. I mean, I. I think this, like I said, the, the timing for him politically is is really bad. Uh, particularly, I mean, he was already a wounded candidate um, because you know, because it's never good when uh, the authorities swoop in and search your home and office as they did. Yeah, that's right. Uh, with, you know, with, with Claire earlier, so he was already kind of damaged goods going into this. This certainly is not going to help. And he had a a rally. Uh, on the east side on Wednesday, which uh, had been planned before this uh, this Supreme Court leak uh, came out, but it was it was there. It was just hovering, and no, and it was, there was no discussion at the rally uh, about it. And one of the things about this uh, you know pending Supreme Court decision uh, that it is also, I think, placed the Democratic House leadership in, a, in a, an uncomfortable position because you've got House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and others in the in the party leadership saying, "Well, we this is why people need to vote for Democrats in November because we need to, you know, we need to pass a bill that can protect women's rights, uh, reproductive rights." At the same time, Nancy Pelosi and other House leader. Uh, Democratic leaders are supporting Henry Cuellar in this runoff. And you had Majority Whip uh, Jim Clyburn from South Carolina at the rally on Wednesday. There was no mention of abortion at all. He just he did say, you know, I have disagreements um, with Henry Cuellar on some issues. I was married 58 years. I, my wife and I didn't agree on everything. But um, he just he he concentrated on the ways in which Henry Cuellar has been a bipartisan force that has helped Democrats. And the big story was about the um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which you had some progressive Democrats, uh, members of the squad who did not get behind it because they wanted it to be attached to a more ambitious um, Build Back Better plan. And so Clyburn emphasized that it was Cuellar working to help get Republican support that that got got this passed into law. So that was the emphasis. Um, but it, it it's you know a, a, an interesting thing. I mean, we got 
about 65 to 70% of the, the public when you polled them, and this has been pretty consistent in recent years, so it was opposed to the idea of overturning Roe. Um, but the politics can get a little complicated when you're talking about South Texas and, uh, and particularly, you know, his, his home base, Cuero's home base, Laredo. Before we move on to another issue, I really wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the political history behind the abortion issue. Because I've, I've been kind of fascinated uh, whenever I've looked back at, you know, how this issue has, has really turned into um, such a uh, litmus test issue for both Democrats and Republicans that, you know, you're now at a point where Henry Quire is the only uh, anti-choice Democrat in the House. You've got, um, you've got, I think, a, a couple of pro-choice uh, Republicans in the Senate, but it, it's it's essentially become just a very much a party line and a, and a clear ideological thing. And I think that if we go back to the politics surrounding the Roe decision, the, the time leading up to it, and, and maybe the first decade or so after uh, the Roe decision came out, what you tended to see from politicians in both parties, it was not, there was not a big ideological divide. There was, politicians tended to be uncomfortable talking about it. They were very, they were ambivalent about it. They, you tended to hear a lot of stuff like, well, I'm opposed to it personally, but, um, uh, I'm opposed to abortion personally, but I, I don't necessarily want to pass a constitutional amendment to ban it, which some on the right had did advocate back then. But a, a lot of politicians were kind of in the middle. And I'm, I, I was going to, if you all don't mind, I'm just going to read a little, uh, just some, some quotes from some people at the time. And this is uh, because I, I didn't know this until recently, but you had for one of the people that, that was asked about uh, the road decision a lot uh, was not only because he was a powerful political force, but because he was, he was a Catholic. And it was, this was primarily seen as a Catholic issue at the time. It was, it was a, uh, Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy. This is what he had to say, like with, within weeks of the road decision. Uh, he said that the Supreme Court ruling, quote, will not diminish the concerns of many Americans who will continue to question the moral, medical, and theological aspects of this extremely complex issue. Uh, he basically uh, said that he was, this was, Supreme Court decision was the law and that he, you know, uh, supported it in the, in the sense that this was, this was the decision that had been made and that people should, should uh, respect that. But his, his quote went on, he went on to say, quote, there are a great many people who will continue to have strong convictions that, that the legalization of abortion on demand is not in accordance with the value w which our civilization places on human life. It remains my personal feeling that once life begins, no matter what age of, of growth, termination should be decided merely, should not be merely decided by uh, desire. Um, in 1972, the year before the decision, uh, Frances Farenthold was running for governor of Texas. She was probably the the great liberal hero tex in Texas politics at the time. Uh, her quote on abortion was, uh, I am a Roman Catholic. I personally would not be in favor of abortion, but at the same time, I cannot impose my feelings on other people. Abortion should be a private matter for the woman involved, and she should make the final decision. The final one I want to read is, this is Jimmy Carter in 1976, and I think, uh, like a lot of politicians at the time uh, in both parties, he was just pretty uncomfortable talking about it and uh, and kind of was trying to strike some kind of middle ground. He said, uh, quote, I think abortion is wrong. I don't think government should do anything to encourage abortion. I think abortion is a result of failure of measures designed to prevent unwanted pregnancies and to induce the mother to carry the unwanted child through to delivery. I think we ought to do everything to have better education, family planning, contraceptives if desired. So anyway, I, if you go back and look at George H.W. Bush at the time, he would have said, um, 
I don't know when cons- uh, when life begins. I I'm, I I don't want to see a constitutional amendment to ban it, uh, to ban uh, abortion. Uh, I'm kind of uncomfortable with it personally. G- Gerald Ford, who's the Republican president in the mid seventies, said this, said, uh, the same kind of thing. And so, w- when I look back at these quotes, I'm really not seeing a big difference between some of the leading figures on the left and some of the you know the leading Republican figures at the time. And I think that it was not until the religious sort of fundamentalists in this country sort of adopted this issue, which had not been a big issue for them prior to Roe, and and even for the first several years after that, but maybe late 70s, early 80s, started to adopt this issue. And it became, we started to see this kind of culture war building around it. And I think Democrats were, who, as I, as I pointed out, were kind of ambivalent about it. You, Ted Kennedy was kind of, you know, he, he was kind of uncomfortable with work. You started to see the tone change. Joe Biden, if you go back and look at his old quotes, was much less full-throated in his support for abortion rights um, in, you know, in the seventies and, and the early years after the road decision. But I think Democrats were put in a position where they felt we have to strongly stand behind a woman's right to choose because the other side has become so adamant in its opposition. And one thing that I found was really interesting was that in the 1980, when things really started to turn, 1980, Ronald Reagan is nominated for president uh, on the Republican side, and he's advocating for a constitutional amendment to ban abortion. And the, the party platform included a plank that said that any appointee to a federal court had to be uh, anti-choice. This, this, this was a litmus test that was imposed. And you had two leading Republican senators, Bob Dole and Charles Percy, who were really angry about that plank and thought this was really wrong. I think Percy said this was one of the worst things he'd ever seen in a party platform. So there was a lot of division happening. Um, and uh, it, it, things have changed. And Carrie, I don't know, you know, what you, I think we've both followed politics for a long time. You know, what is your sense about how we got there? Because it seemed like there was potential for at least dialogue at one point and the, the two parties really split in a big way at some point. And I, but I, I also wonder, I don't know what, what the, what the polling was at the time of, of, of what would be ready at the time of the decision. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned earlier, we have, you know, 60 to 70% of the American people support, or, you know, the woman's right, the choice. Right, and I, so I, I wonder if, if, uh, and I don't think that's all Democrats. So I, I think that does reflect that over the last fifty years, we've seen more, more people of, of different parties, including, including Republicans, uh, who are more likely to be pro-choice. And, mm-hmm. and the one thing I don't think has ever changed in, in the fifty years is whether one is pro-choice or quote unquote pro-life. It's not like folks are enthusiastic about getting an abortion. Mm-hmm. It's not like people, it's not like women are, are just can't wait to get an abortion. Uh, when, when, when women need to have an abortion, it's, it's you know, for whatever reason they need to have one, it, it's the most <laughs> personal decision one has to make. And that's what it all comes down to. It's the most personal decision and takes a man and a woman to make a baby, but we don't have to carry the child for nine months. Right. And, and the circumstances of that birth, you know, we don't, you know, it, 
it could be rape, it could be incest. And no matter how you look at it, I mean, you know, we're four men and never in our lifetimes have we had to worry about our reproductive rights being compromised or denied. And it, it, you know, it really, it really is the ultimate male privilege of being able to have an unregulated, unregulated reproductive organ. No, I was just gonna say that, you know, you're right. And, and so, so much of this, um, of the debate, you know, I, I mean, I'll, I'll see when Beth O'Rourke, for example, was running for Senate in 2018, I would get emails from people on the political ride who opposed him and they would refer to him as a baby killer and so on, you know, and, uh, because he believed in a, in a woman's legal right to choose. And, uh, the, the rhetoric on the right tends to, to refer to people who are pro-choice as pro-abortion. And I always kind of, and, and certainly there, there are differing views within the pro-choice movement on, you know, as far as their, their perspective on, on, on abortion and what it means. But I was go back to like, uh, Ron Paul, who, when he was uh, running for president uh, about 10 years ago and coming from a libertarian perspective, he would say, I think all drugs should be legal, you know, including, including heroin, you know, and then uh, he would say, well, you know, I, I'm not encouraging people to do heroin. I don't think it's a good thing for them to do it necessarily, but, um, but I don't think people should be arrested for it. I don't think it should be, there should be a law against it. And I think that to, to support a woman's right to choose to say that you don't think it should be illegal for for a woman to be able to make that choice is not exactly the same thing as saying you're you're an advocate for for that for that practice or that procedure and i think that gets lost a lot of times in the debate um I want to, before we wrap things up i wanted to talk a little bit about the the situation with the spurs um I don't have to tell anybody listening about the, you know, how intense the, the, the feelings are in the city about this. The Spurs are, are one major league sports franchise, uh, you know, a, a franchise that's, that's brought five championships to this, in this city. And I think that there have been concerns over the years about the possibility of San Antonio losing the Spurs, but those feelings have really intensified recently. And um, it's, it's, been brought on by the fact that the Spurs have have gone before uh, commissioner's court, have requested a change in their relocation contract, which is in play until 2032. And I I believe it currently allows them to have two games away from the AT&T Center uh, a year. And they want to uh, expand that to four. Uh, The idea is two games would be within a hundred mile radius, which looks like Austin. Um, they could do one international game, which would uh, almost certainly be Mexico City, and then they could do one game at the Alamo Dome. The commissioner's court's pretty divided on this. I think there, there's about, like about a three-two split in favor of this um, this proposal, but there's a lot of concern out there. There was just an op-ed in the Express News the other day from Congressman Tony Gonzalez, uh, who was encouraging the community to really take this seriously and to. Uh, um, and there has been some talk about whether the Spurs might need a, a new venue. The AT&T Center is about 20 years old. In my, in my eyes, it's, it's still a kind of a relatively new venue, but I know how uh, sports franchises work and they're, they're always kind of chasing the new and the, and the, the state of the art. So, um, Greg, I want to talk to you a little bit about this because you, this, is, this is something you've written about in the past, um, the Spurs ownership group and, and, and what we should make of that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really important to go back a year because that's I mean, that's really where kind of the <laughs> the angst we're seeing today uh, started. So uh, about a year ago, uh, Spurs Sports and Entertainment changed its uh, basically ownership structure. They brought in uh, billionaire Michael Dell, you know, Tech Marvel from Austin. Mm-hmm. Uh, they brought in uh, Sixth Street Partners, which is a San Francisco-based uh, private equity firm. And together, they own 30% of the Spurs. And what that meant was, uh, I think it was something on the order of 11 local investors in the Spurs were basically bought out. And since then, you've, you've had uh, Joe Gebbia, the co-founder of Airbnb. He's also now an investor. So you have a lot of tech wealth and private, you know, private equity wealth flowing into the Spurs that you'd never seen before. Um, the, the ownership structure had been very local. And I think, you know, community leaders, you know, political and business leaders felt good about that. It, it, they, they saw that as kind of a bulwark for the team, you know, being relocated. And that's that's really that's really pretty dramatically weakened with this, you know, under the new ownership structure. So now you have the Spurs wanting to play, you know, apparently wanting to play two games in Austin in the next season in the brand spanking new uh, Moody Center. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can you can just see the concern. <laughs> I mean, you yes. saw it at Commissioner's Court last week. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, my guess is uh, if if they wind up playing in Austin two games, those games are going to sell out immediately. It'll yep. be a big show. They'll get a lot of attention because Austin, um, apart from being a city that's really fast growing and, um, you know, it's a city with a lot of wealth kind of spilling all over the place, most of it tech driven, they don't have, you know, they, unless you count major league soccer, we all have soccer, but they don't actually have a major professional sports team. Right. Uh, And I think there are a lot of people in Austin who would love to have the Spurs relocated. The question is, is Michael Dell one of them? So the concern is that, you know, is, is this as, as commissioner Tommy Calvert kind of, you know, he raised the possibility that, is this the Spurs actually testing the waters in Austin to see how the Spurs would be received? I don't know that you actually, um, you know, I, I think you can you can pretty much do an economic model of this and mm-hmm. determine they probably do really well in Austin with, without sure. two games. But, uh, you know, so I, you can see why they're concerned, why, why Commissioner's Court is concerned, and they should be. Uh, we just don't know. Um, if there is a push among new investors to move the team to Austin, it is important to note, though, that um, the Spurs have said, uh, you know, since announcing, you know, the new investors in the team, that you know, part of the this influx of of investment money from from Dell and from Sixth Street and and, and, and Gebbia, this part of part of this will be used to expand the Spurs fan base from you know roughly northern Mexico, Monterey to the Austin area, and that's something the Spurs have never really capitalized all that well on. And you know it takes money to do that. So you know I think the Spurs you know I think they'll say that you know two games in Austin that's that's a great way of ginning up that fan base that that potential fan base in Austin. Um, 
And it's not necessarily because of a move, but you know, the unspoken part is it could be. There's, <laughs> I mean, there's could a be lot of nervousness out there. Well, and I, uh, I think I've heard some people who are is, yeah. involved in sports, uh, who, you know, local yeah. people who have made the argument that this, uh, and I don't know if, if many people are buying this, but that, that it should actually be encouraging in some way, because if they're just saying, we're going to do this little thing, you know, every, play a couple of games in Austin, mm-hmm. play a game in Mexico City, that that's almost, uh, that's building the brand. That's, that is creating sort of a, a path forward where they can stay in right. San Antonio and still get, build and expand, you know, their reach uh, without having mm-hmm. to relocate. Uh, I mean, I, I think... I, I can understand the argument. I, at the same time, emotionally, I don't necessarily uh, buy into it. But <laughs> well, I mean, exactly. Uh, you know, a, a year ago, I, I was doing some reporting around this about a, last summer. Uh, you know, for a couple of pieces I did on the new investors, and you know, I had you know somebody from the Spurs telling me that look, I mean, he this person felt like uh, the Spurs had never been more secure in San Antonio than they were right then with this influx of new capital, that it would help them expand and, you know, increase their fan base. And that makes them more secure here. So that's definitely a line of thinking, whether it's a good line of thinking, I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. Well, the question I have, Greg, is the Mm movie center, what's the seating capacity? Is it it like 10,000? 15. Okay. I'm not actually sure. And I'm not sure if that can be easily reconfigured or not. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it could be on the small side, frankly. I mean, so it could be, yeah, I mean, if they were to make the move, it could be into a new, new arena. Which would, so, so I was, what I've been thinking about over the weekend is, you know, how do they do this on this? How could, say, for instance, that Michael Dale wanted to, mm-hmm. to build a large, build a larger, larger arena in Austin. Right. Uh, I mean, once that starts happening, I mean, that's mm-hmm. when the freak out here really begins. And, yeah. uh, uh and 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 you know, and just trying to imagine this city without the Spurs. Okay, granted, we were here mm-hmm. two hundred and fifty years or so without before the Spurs came. But if they were to leave this as 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 loved as, as they are now, if mm-hmm. they were to leave this city, it would be like Art Modell and the Browns. Well, yeah, I mean, and I actually i I think it would even be even bigger than that. I mean, I think you you have to look at AT&T's decision to move its headquarters from San Antonio to Dallas in 2008. Yeah. And, you know, if you have something on the magnitude of the Spurs leaving, I mean, that's a I mean, that's um, not an insurmountable uh, problem for the city just in terms of corporate recruitment and retention. But it just got a lot harder to do. I mean, nothing says uh, you are a second, third tier city, then you can't keep AT&T and you can't keep the Spurs. That's Mm. I also, I mean, you know, there's, there could be, and we, we don't know, like at this point, we just don't know, but there could be uh, this whole Machiavellian side to it where what the Spurs, you know, there's a line of thought that what the Spurs are actually after is a downtown area arena. That mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons, AT and T Center, which is like like you mentioned, Gilbert, it's, it's only you know twenty years old, not that old, but it's it's pretty remote, and you know you're seeing like the Staples Center in Los Angeles, which is mm-hmm. surrounded by retail. I mean, it's it's a whole cluster of stuff for right. you know Lakers fans, 
And I think they want something similar in San Antonio, or at least you know, it stands to reason. So is, you know, the, the possibility of playing two games, if they actually do it in Austin, is that, are they seeking leverage to maybe at least start talking about a downtown arena to say, look, this went really well in Austin <laughs> and it's always an option. We'd hate to have to leave, but you know, if, if we could, if we could just somehow work out a downtown deal, uh, that would really secure us. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. I think, I think that's a real possibility. I was going to say, you have Austin on the sidelines, tell us San Antonio, that's a nice little team you have down there. It's a shame <laughs> if you lost it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. One of the things that's interesting too is about, is that, you know, th- there is a, a one reaction, uh, which is, you know, we got to do everything we can to keep them. And then there are some people who get kind of resentful, like, the, you know, what are the Spurs doing? And, you know, and and kind of a, a, a little bit of antagonism already developing, you know, towards the, the, the organization. And I think it's a tricky yeah. thing. Uh, well, it would help if they had a winning season. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I, <laughs> I'm a believer. I think they're going in the right direction. But anyway, that's that's it might not be we might be on the wrong podcast to talk about that. But um I do think that it's a tricky thing. This is like, you know, there's the story which Shaquille O'Neal tells about how he was in Orlando. They had a great young team. Um, he ended up leaving for the Lakers, and he often talks about the fact that he didn't want to leave, that he was not he was not uh chasing, you know, the, the limelight in LA, he had a rap career, but he could do it just as easily in Orlando. He was not, there was no real desire on his part to leave, but he felt that the organization was kind of, uh, uh, you know, they were, they were not real, uh, amenable to, uh, to, you know, his, his, he, I think he felt he was being insulted really with, with the offer that they made him. And then they, you had, I think you had a local poll saying, should they pay him this much? And people said no. And so he started to feel like they don't want me here. And he got, he got really bent out of shape about it. And I think that contributed, I think it was, you know, it, it was just a one, a series of events that kind of led to him leaving, but it was, you know, it was not really part of the plan. And I'm not saying that that something similar could happen here, but I think that it's an interesting thing when you have this dialogue that if people, if the Spurs organization starts to feel like um, people don't like us here and they resent us and they're starting to they're and they're getting really negative toward us, you know, are are you in some way sort of pushing them away without meaning to do that? And I, I it's just a thought that I have, and I don't know. I mean, because it's it's good. I think that the the dialogue the on the commissioner's court and elsewhere, I think needs to. I think people need to be kind of careful about it, the way that that this is approached, um, because you think you can. There's some unintended consequences that can happen there. Um, I think we're going to wrap things up there. Uh, Hope everyone's doing well. We'll be back with you next week. Take care.